Welcome to this week's Money and Investing Show. This week we are tackling the thorny topic of debt recycling. The good, the bad, the ugly, the pitfalls to avoid, the times to use it, but most importantly, avoiding any kind of emotional strain that may force you into that decision. Enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing Show with me, your host, Andrew Baxter, and as always, my offsider, Mr. Mitchell Laurential. Thanks for having me on the show, Mr. B, looking awfully dapper today. And to jump straight into things, look, I don't consider myself very much of a green person. However, we are going to chat about recycling today. More importantly, debt recycling. Oh, good uh, segue there, Mitch. And yeah, I mean, look, this is an interesting one, isn't it? Very topical at the moment, too, as we're seeing um, real assets, property shares really perform very, very strongly. So a lot of people are looking through the lens of how can I get there more quickly. Let's start off with a couple of definitions. Let's talk about good and bad debt in the first instance. And I guess my caveat on this, I hate debt. I truly do. Um, <laughs> and my father always said, as long as you're in debt, somebody owns you. And I've taken that to, uh, to heart. And perhaps that means I've missed out on gearing up into a lot of investments, but ultimately it hasn't done me any harm when I sleep at night. So good and bad debt in the traditional sense. Good debt is where you've bought an asset like a house. Bad debt would be credit card, uh, car loans, if you don't have the right structure to deduct the cost of your car. And we've covered this previously in other podcasts. And when, when you differentiate between the two, obviously a mortgage is, is a loan that you owe, but the idea is that it goes up in value, right? So the, actually, the asset you're buying is going up in value, correct. that's correct. So you're effectively credit making card. money. Credit card's debt money, you're just servicing debt for, for a consumable in some way. So that sure. would be the traditional definitions of good and bad debt. For the benefit of today, talking about debt recycling, we can look at debt in a slightly different way. Um, and good debt being tax deductible debt and bad debt being non-deductible okay, okay for the definitions that we're running on for today so a good example of this you know bad debt in this example would be say you own a primary place of residence it's where you live your mortgage and the interest around it is not a tax deduction and from a debt recycling perspective that would be viewed as being bad debt sure mm. Let's talk about how to debt recycle. And I think probably a good place to start would be the property market because mm. that's an example that we can all understand. Property markets run pretty hot. From mm. our, our research, it's about 36% overvalued. So mm. people have seen huge increases in the value of their homes. Yeah. How do you use that increase in that new equity, new equity, excuse me, to then sort of gear up and okay. into other assets? So the, the idea of debt recycling is where you, you remove the equity that you've built up in your asset, your primary place of residence, non-deductible tax-wise, and you create a line of credit and use that funding as part of that line of credit, the interest around it becomes tax deductible for you and therefore is what we would deem in this example of being good debt. So you're then gonna take that, that line of credit or, or, or investment loan, if you will, to buy shares or to buy another property to gear up. And the idea would be that this outperforms, your, your, your investment loan outperforms, it lets you pay off your mortgage more quickly and you've had the benefit of the tax deductions on the way through. So in theory, that's how debt recycling works. We're taking equity out of an asset that we have, primary place of residence being the most likely place for it, and we're moving the cash that we extract from that and using it in a form of credit facility, which will incur interest, but because it's an investment loan, will become tax deductible for us to buy a second property or perhaps a portfolio of shares. It sounds like a great story, and I think probably a good place now would be to use a practical example. Mm. Let's say I bought a house worth 800,000 mm. and I owed 500 on that. So yes. 300,000 was mine, that was my deposit. Mm. The property gets revalued sometimes later and it comes back at a million bucks. Mm. Do I now have a situation where I've got 300 that I initially put down plus the extra 200 that it's valued at, so 500 grand, right? Yeah. So you've created all up based on what you've paid in plus the appreciation and the value of the property, $500,000 in equity, okay? So you could say, well, I'm gonna take 
500 grand out of that. Oof. And I'm going to use that for my investment loan. And I will service the debt on what I've got over here. So I've got a million dollar property, but effectively now I don't have any equity in it. So it's going to cost me a little bit more to service, but I've got 500,000 working in investment markets. And, and the key thing here is the performance of those investment assets would need to be sufficient to offset the cost of the debt over here sure. and also to pay down the loan. That's the theory. And I understand theory and practice can be quite different. That's the theory of what we're, self, we're setting ourselves up for. Now, if your investments perform very, very well, let's say you bought another property and it's jumped by 20, 30% in value over a sort of 18 month, two year period, all of a sudden it was quite a smart transaction and the fact that you've built great equity over here, you could do a drawdown to pay that down a little bit uh, on, the, on the home loan side and away you go, or your share portfolio, if you bought Afterpay or something, you've done very, very nicely out of it and, and you can pay down your home loan from the proceeds of that investment. So to the plus side, it's extremely attractive. The downside to this is what if, and I know if is a very, very small <laughs> word and it comes with significant ramifications. And as a professional investor, as a professional trader, I always focus on risk first. And that's probably why I've been able to amass the wealth that I have. And it's why I've been able to keep it. And that is by being very focused on that risk side of it. So if this investment, this investment um, portfolio doesn't work, maybe worse still, not only does it not work, it implodes. I've got a situation where I've increased my debt on my property after putting all the hard work into paying it down and building some equity up in it. And on my investment loan, it's worth less than what I paid for it too. So I've got a double whammy of pain on the investment side and on my personal side because my view or my timing wasn't right. And this probably leads us to the most important thing. If you're listening to this and you are thinking about debt recycling, the most important thing you need to understand is what your attitude to risk actually is. Because if you move into a debt recycling phase, where you've got good debt that you can claim tax on. On one level, you might feel good about that, I've reduced my tax burden, but the risk aspect of that, should it not perform, can cause significant ramifications where you know, you've got more debt on your family home, you could run the risk of losing your family home for the sake of some tax benefit. So understanding what your risk profile is, is absolutely crucial. Everyone wants the upside. Everyone wants a rainbow, nobody wants the rainstorm. And it's as simple as that. So you need to be very in tune with what your real level of risk appetite is. And it's not just you, it might be you and your partner and chances are they're gonna be quite different. So that's number one. Number two, I've never been a believer in that you take on an investment strategy purely and simply for tax deductibility. You should look at the individual investment strategy on its own merit, and if it comes with some form of tax benefit, well, that's just a bonus. That's the cream on the cake. That sure. should never be the overarching reason you get into an investment. Oh, it's tax deductible. Because all of a sudden you're looking through one set of lenses when you need to look through multiple sets of lenses with an investment. Find something you're comfortable with, and if it's tax deductible, fantastic. Great, bonus. Yeah, absolute bonus. So getting back to that first point that you made, risk profile, mm. how do you understand that? Because that's a little bit of a gray area as to mm. where you both sit and where, where you're gonna meet in the middle, right? Well, it also depends on the asset that you're talking about too. If you, uh, and we see this in our financial planning business all the time. If you talk about someone's risk profile in super versus their risk profile out of super, it can often be different. And it's the same person, but because it's a different asset pool and they see it in a different way, their attitude towards risk can be quite substantially different. Likewise, within the relationship, male and female, husband, wife, 
the relationship can vary there too. One can be more aggressive and the other one more risk, uh, risk averse. And so, you know, you've got to find where that balance is. And, you know, we do financial, within our financial planning, we do good risk assessments in order to be able to provide advice. It's a very important part of what we do. So as sort of a practical example, if we tie that back to before where we mm. said our property's now worth a million bucks, you had 300,000 in equity that's now worth 500, mm. we'd say maybe withdrawing another, say say 100,000 of that mm. as a deposit for an investment property and then servicing that mortgage over there with a little bit more of yeah. debt in hand as such, is that more risk averse or less risk averse? Look, I, I think that's smarter, bearing in mind my particular personal lenses sure. are like that. And again, we've talked about this in previous podcasts where we've talked of just because you can borrow it doesn't mean you should borrow it. Sure. Um, you know, right now we've seen the banks go through since the Royal Commission of a number of years ago, um, the whole um, heat turned up in terms of responsible lending. So, you know, prior to that, you know, loans are being dished out like lolly water. It's come in, it's been a little bit more conservative and that's probably a good thing and that should stay. I know there's a, it's in parliament right now to, to repeal that responsible lending. Let's hope that doesn't happen. So, you know, if you've got the ability to draw three, $400,000 out of your mortgage, start with a hundred. And that way you're dipping your toe over here. Mind you, 100 grand as a deposit is not going to get you that far in the property market no. right now, but that's going to let you dip a toe and start to work things through. Key thing in here, of course, Mitch, is all about timing. Now, two things. Number one, interest rates are very low. So it's only the interest component that's tax deductible. And you know you can get a home loan now beginning with a two. Or an investment loan, maybe a three and a bit. So the cost of borrowing money is actually very, very low at the moment, which to my mind would mean using a debt recycling strategy is less attractive than when interest rates are much higher. Right. Because the proportion of deductibility that you're going to get is commensurately lower. You're going to claim the interest. However, that's not something we consider to begin with, right? Because we're getting into this not on the basis of tax deductibility, rather for the investment itself, right. yeah? So the second thing in terms of timing is, is the asset I'm looking, and no one has a crystal ball, it's always good to look back with hindsight, <laughs> but is the asset I'm looking to invest in, whereabouts, whereabouts in the cycle are we? Are we moving well up towards the top end of the cycle, or is the cycle just beginning? And this is incredibly subjective. Now, if we were to talk about property for a moment, yeah, and I love the property market, it's been very, very kind to me, I just completed a transaction a couple of weeks ago, terrific, happy days. But the reality is where in the cycle are we? Are we getting near the top or is this just the beginning? And we can discuss this at infinitum. Until the cows go home. Yeah. Um, if we look at yield on property, okay, now that's the rent divided by the value of the property, effectively to give you a percentage return on it. Sure. We've got a runaway property market that's you know, in my local, my backyard is Byron Bay, and you know, the Byron Bay market was up about 40% last year. That's crazy. And everyone's carrying on that you know, it's getting too expensive to live there. It's only getting too expensive to live there if you're renting. If you already own, it's been fantastic because the asset you've got has just jumped in value by right. 40%. Now, rents are not gonna be able to jump by 40% because we simply haven't seen any wage growth to follow that on. Um, we talk about that, I think we did a podcast a week or so ago on inflation and we sort of address wage growth in there. So, you know, all of a sudden you've got a, an extended valuation on property where it's expensive or relatively expensive, but the rent isn't growing at a level to support a commercial yield of four and a half or five percent. Yields are getting compressed down. So as the property owner, um, you're only maybe getting a two percent return on the value of your property. And so the whole bet is that the market is going to continue going up and that's how you're going to make your money. That's a directional play. Now, directional plays are great when you get them right and they're horrific when you get them wrong because it's either red or black, you're right or wrong. Same with the stock market. 
And as you know, within the stock market, we like to tilt the deck. So whether it goes up, down or sideways, we like to tilt the deck so we get paid. Sure. And, and, and that is a real challenge. So if you buy a very highly valued property now, and maybe it might keep moving up, but maybe it doesn't. And if the rent doesn't move up on the back of it, you got yourself a real problem in that when interest rates eventually do start to move up, the ability for the rent to service the property diminishes. Okay, you claim the tax benefit, might be a deduction against your investment loan, or depending on your structure, you could be negatively gearing against your own personal tax. What if you lose your job? Then you're in real trouble. The rent's not covering the investment property, you've got very little equity left in your home loan, and you've got all of this debt and a market that perhaps is stalling, who knows? And that's why I say understanding your risk profile is key before you jump into it. The flip side of that is, let's say there's another 50% in this property market before it starts to flatten out. Well, getting in now and seeing the asset that you've just bought and you're geared into jump up by another 50% will be the best decision you've ever made. <laughs> and herein is the difficulty when it comes to investing is timing. You can be absolutely right or you can be absolutely wrong. You can be maybe partly right, maybe partly wrong. And if you're gonna be absolutely right, gear up. But how many of us know when we're going to be absolutely right? We don't. We never know. Probably my wife. But that's. Uh, <laughs> um, but the, the, the reality is that you know, if you are gearing up, you need a very, very high level of certainty as to what you're doing. If you're less certain on the market, don't gear up. And that applies to shares in the same way that it applies to property or any other real asset. So using property as a good example here, yeah. AB, the question I'd like to ask you, how does this differ from cross-collateralization or is it much the same? They're similar but different. Now, cross-collateralization, and I've done enough work in the property space, and, and this is one of the biggest rookie errors that you see people fall into. Every, and, and a very good friend of mine um, is an expert at working in insolvency and asset protection. In their, and in fact, we should probably try and get him on and have a chat because yeah, let's do that. some of the pearls of wisdom that he can share are second to none. The reality is, if you look at most lending agreements from a bank, if there is an issue with one of your loans, they are able to reclaim any and all funds from any and all assets that they have covered. So if you have one bank, and a lot of people that get into investment property or they go to a seminar on it, they'll say, build a great relationship with your bank. If it's a deep relationship, you know, you're gonna be able to borrow more money. Sure. The problem is if it's with one financial institution, you've got a house of cards, one falls over, triggers the next one, triggers the next one, triggers the next one. And depending on how aggressive you've been within your gearing, you may find that the mothership, your primary place of residence, if that's what you've used, or maybe you've got one flagship investment property that you've owned for 20 years and you know, it's, it's positively geared and everything about it, you've just done a drawdown against it. Everything could kick in, you can end up losing the lot. That's brutal. That's brutal. That's cross-collateralization. And I could talk to, I could introduce you as you well know, we've got a couple of clients in our broking business that previously in property have fallen foul of that. And, sure. and that's, that's the stark reality. So having separate lenders for separate loans is one way of putting a little bit of a fuse in between those loans and, and the ability to call that as collateral. Second thing is if you're a personal guarantor, that's another risk that you can run into in here as well. So yeah, it's a rookie error to cross-collateralize one property with the next with the next, because if something systemic happens, you know, the rug can really be pulled from under you and it can be quite nasty. I've seen it happen plenty of times. And again, the lenses I typically look through with, uh, with my investing is risk first. Um, and, I, and I hope I can encourage everybody to do that uh, because it's a great way of being able to retain your wealth when things cut up a little bit choppy. So yeah, there's a big temptation. Take the asset out, I'll take the cash out of that asset and roll it in the same financial institution over here and then do the same thing over here and suck all the equity out of everything. And you know, you've got maybe 20 properties, there's no equity in any of them. And the ability to service that debt, uh, if, if the rent isn't there and interest rates move up, it can be a house of cards literally and, and, and that's it, it's curtains, you're done. And then we have another GFC. Put the tag around the toe, wheel you into the mortuary and that was you. Wow. Mm. 
Well, let's let's move now forward to something that's probably a little bit more bread and butter for us. We've mm. chatted a lot about the property market. Mm. We can use that equity we've built up in our PPR, as you mentioned, to mm. invest in the stock market. It's an investment loan as such. Yeah. Where do you recommend playing based on your risk profile in the stock market? Is in ETFs, stocks, mm. um, various other assets you can build with that within around that, right? Look, there's probably two, three layers I would put on that. Number one, again, let's go back attitude to risk before you go taking it out of one asset and putting it into another with, you know, I would argue from time to time the stock market is a lower risk asset than property from time to time and, and vice versa. I think time horizons are something that's very, very important. We haven't talked about timing at this point. We've talked about timing in the market, we haven't talked about time. And, and if you're taking a chunk of cash out of your primary place of residence to put it into the market, I think you do have to take a longer term view. And that's not buy and hold, that's definitely not the philosophy I'd recommend either. But you do have to take a long time frame period to look at this investment. You can't be you know, day trading or taking short-term swing trades. No. You know, you've got to put that asset in and get it working. And I think having said that as well, you've got to be prepared to roll with the punches if there are short-term valuation changes. So you know, let's say we get a short-term pullback in the market. And that could be a five to 10% pullback. That's not a correction, it's not a crash, it's just the normal course of business that we see. And, and you know, there's a bit of tension in the South China Sea, the Suez Canal jets jammed up, there's inflation in the US, any of the above uh, can see a little bit of short-term volatility in markets. If that's the sort of thing that's going to make you panic and quick sell everything, you shouldn't be doing it's not for you. In debt the recycling. Place. So your attitude to risk is reflected with that. You've got to be prepared to ride that volatility out and accept that short-term volatility is very much apart from stock market investing. Secondly, uh, within there, if you're over-geared, so if you've taken the chunk of dough out of your primary place of residence and you've got the ability to get an investment loan of some sort and you've gone all in with that, if the value of your shares drop below um, the loan-to-value requirement that your lender wants, so let's say you know, they might say 70%, you, you know, they'll lend you 70%, you put 30% in. You buy a share that's $100, as long as the share price stays above 70, you're okay. But if the share price drops to 60 and you've only put 30 bucks in, you're gonna to have to drop another $10 into that account to cover that margin move. Sure. Okay. And you may not have access to that funding if you've gone too big. And that's why I say drip feed, take a little bit out get used to working with that, never ever over gear because you need to have that provision, that meat on the bone if things work against you. And again, I might be looking through extremely negative lenses, but there's a reason I've achieved the financial success that I have and I've never been really cut up with a major market correction or a property market correction because I've always kept my powder dry and had more firepower there if I need. And yes, I've missed out on opportunity by not over gearing, but I can sleep at night. And that's, that's one of the most important things. Mm. There's a question I'd like to ask you on that, mm. AB, just listening to that. Theoretically, I mean, taking money out of your PPR, for example, is a form of, of sort of gearing mm. up. And then investing in the stock market with a margin loan is like a second layer of gearing up. Mm. You're talking pretty spicy stuff there. Does anyone in their right mind actually do that? Absolutely. And it can work very, very well. It comes back to timing. Let's say you did this on March 24th. Oh. And, 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 and let's face it, you'd have a, you'd have a pretty strong spine uh, to want to do that. Yeah. You know, we're taking a view that property is going to bounce from here and we're taking a view that equity markets are as well. And if you got that right, you've absolutely You're killed laughing. it. Fortune favours the brave, but at the same time, it could have been equally the other way around and you could be wearing a whole lot of pain now uh, if we hadn't seen the recovery in property and, and the market tanked. 
So again, it comes back to, are you prepared to go all in? And going all in with, with an amount of money you can afford to risk is one thing. Going all in uh, with you know, the crown jewels, your family home. You know, how do you feel when you walk in the door, you knock on the door and, uh, and, and your wife opens the door and says, well, how come you didn't use your key? And you say, it's not our house anymore, that's why. And your kids are there going, what's going on? And you go, yeah, sorry, kids, we're moving. Daddy, why is that? That's what you want to be thinking about, what that feeling would be like by overgearing. And there'll be plenty of people out there that will say you into the, you must debt recycle, gear up, bull market, it's the way to get ahead. And potentially it can be if your timing is right and your attitude to risk is able to absorb that level of stress. If your timing is wrong, your attitude to risk can't handle that. Um, or economic conditions change. Now, it's great doing this when there's a rising tide, but let's say the tide's going out, you lose your job just to add a level of misery. Play back that conversation of knocking on the door, talking to your wife and kids saying, sorry guys, we're moving out. Daddy, how come you're not using your key? We lost the house, I'm sorry. It's brutal. I don't, I don't want to think, I don't have any kids, but I can only imagine how, how grim that must be. <laughs> it's, a, it's a scary way to look at things. It, it's an extreme. But it works. But I would rather put that out there for people to contemplate, not to be a scaremonger, that's the last thing I'd do, but to be a realist. Yeah, and it's very, very easy to look at the world through rose-colored glasses. I've been in this game for 30 years. I've seen several cycles in markets. I've seen immeasurable amounts of money made. I've seen immeasurable amounts of money being lost. And in that time, success leaves clues. There's a time to hit the gas, and there's a time to back off. And sometimes you need a crystal ball on when to do that, or better yet, some really solid training on strategy and risk management so you can hit the gas but mitigate risk, which is what our bread and butter is. That's what we teach. It's great advice and it's a really different way of looking at it, but you've got to be a realist, right? There's no point being an optimist when it comes mm. to it comes to investing. Lots to unpack there, AB. There's plenty, there's quite complicated in certain parts. We are at the end of the broadcast. Mm. What are your final parting words here for anyone looking to debt recycle but do it smartly? Yep, don't overclub it. Take your time, ease into it. Rather like going to the gym, start with some lightweights and build into it. Don't go big. Secondly, you know, you should never do a strategy purely and simply because of its tax effectiveness. It has to stand up on its own two feet for the right reasons as an investment with the tax side of it, the tax effectiveness just being the added cream on the cake. Okay. Thirdly, understand the timing. Whereabouts in the cycle are you? Does the timing appear right or not? And you may be right, you may be wrong. And I keep going back to that tax effectiveness because that's what a lot of people sell us on. It's tax effective. I guarantee it's very tax effective because you won't have any inheritance tax to pay for your kids when you blow the whole thing up. Okay, that's how stark it can be. I've seen it happen. Keep things under control. Keep your powder dry. Keep a little bit in reserve always because when you start to redline things, you know, whether it's driving your car or whether it's your trading account or your overall financial position, Redlining is great. You get great acceleration um, and, and it's all exciting and the adrenaline rush is great. The problem is if you continually redline, at some point you're going to blow the engine and when the engine blows up, that's when you don't want to be in that situation and it can very readily happen. So get good advice. Don't overgear. Make sure your timing is right. Don't judge it purely and simply um, on the tax effectiveness and diversify your strategy. It's not just property into property, you do property into shares or indeed vice versa. Um, you know, get some spread of risk in there, uh, do both uh, and do so in a very, very careful manner. And I don't mean to sound like the, the fun please, but this is all about not only um, creating wealth, but it's also protecting wealth. And if you talk about the rainbow without the storm, that can come as a really nasty surprise. I didn't realize all these things can happen. You know, property and cross-collateralization, I didn't realize they can do that. Oh, yes, they can. <laughs> and if you're in trouble in that space, let us know because we've got someone that we can refer you on to that will be able to help you. But if you've already gone down that pathway and you've signed documents where everything is cross-collateralized, 
Good luck. It's done. Yeah. Got to have the labor pains if you want to see the baby. Great advice, AB. Thank you very much. Very different outlook than mm. what I was expecting, but certainly, as you put it, very, very prudent as such to have that view. There's such a lot of headline out there at the moment where fear of missing out, FOMO, is driving people into making decisions, Mitch. And as a concluding point, decisions you make based on emotions are very, very rarely the right decision. Go back to process, cold, hard process, crunch numbers, do your sums, understand your strategy. Don't get sucked in to an emotionally based decision because you can guarantee if you've made it on an emotional basis, it's not made for the right basis and it most certainly won't end the way you expect it to. FOMO is incredibly powerful human emotion and if you get it wrong, it is very expensive. It's the seller's best tool and it can be a buyer's worst nightmare. So if you're debt recycling, you are a buyer, beware of FOMO. Thank you, AB. I gave up emotions when I started working here a few years ago, but thank you very much. Great advice. Good man. Thanks very much. There you have it, guys. Debt Recycling. Give us a review and a rating, and we'll look forward to seeing you next week.